Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast. We've had some really interesting discussions this week about things like whether there should be single-sex train carriages and the way the media covers tragic events. We were also joined in the studio by a style guru, so no pressure there. And first, here's a woman who was really keen to pass on her two-wheeled passion. Well, our guest uh, this afternoon certainly likes to ride her bicycle. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. You know, if there's an opportunity <laughs> for an apt tune, why not? Yeah? <laughs> that no? was a subtle one as well. I liked <laughs> it. Was yeah, no. uh, well, Caroline Helks took up mountain biking in 2007 to have something in common with her partner. She joined the Manx Mountain Bike Club, joined in their social rides, and says after a few months, she became one of the boys. Now, this is something I just want to talk about uh, briefly, Caroline, because it is still seen as a male sport. Why? Yeah. I think because I think from what I've seen of the women I've been cycling with, I think they still think that there is it's a sport that only men can do and do well. And yet, ironically, girls can actually do it. Women can do it just as well. In fact, a couple of the girls that I've known have both represented the Island Games, and that was Nikki Sharp and Julie Linus. You know, and they've come from you know cycling around being one of the boys meeting Julie Linus does the enduro stuff now she's brilliant Nikki you know does different things but again you know we can be just as good as the men if we put ourselves into it and it's the time and effort you need to now there's something um, that you've just said there the time and I think for a lot of women that is the problem I am very well used to being a cycle widow on a Sunday morning um, I don't know if I were to take up this sport which I'm probably not um, but I don't know when I would do it. How would you get out there often enough to be good at it? Well, again, it's, it's you know it's making the time. Partly what I'm hoping to do now, from you know starting off the island, you know the cycling women, you know women's cycling again, is actually trying to look at trying to contact mums so they can you know do the school drop off and maybe do a morning session or an afternoon session, depending whichever fits in around people, as well as doing a nighttime session. And when you're looking at that, you know. Once people have actually got somewhere they know they can go, a route to go, you can go out an hour and a half, two hours. You know, you don't need to just give up a lot of time and, you know, a couple of times a week. I was going to say, I was mm. just going to ask you, how many times mm. a week do you think you need to do it to yeah. actually get really good at it? Well, I, when I was training up for my first end-to-end, I was doing about nine hours a week of mountain biking, three, so it was three times a week, doing sort of two shorter ones, maybe... Yeah, but- End to end, seriously. No, 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 no. Like, yes. Just to get good at it. <laughs> <laughs> that is good at it. That's a challenge. <laughs> well, how important then do you think it is to have a goal, to have a challenge in mind um, with regard to biking as opposed to just going out there and pootling for fun? I think if you've got a goal set, even if it's to actually get from one end of the railway lines to the other set, end of the railway lines and actually manage that, then that's a goal. I did that last week with a friend. You know, she she hadn't been on a bike really properly since she was a child, and said, "Let's go." You know, I said, "Let's go out, let's do it." And we actually cycled to and from Peel, and she loved it. And on the way back, she was actually able to manage jumping on and off the little bridges and climbing over some routes, yeah. which she hadn't been able to do on the way there. But we talked it through. Well, you see, that's the thing that gets me, Caroline. Yeah. It just sounds and it looks a little bit dangerous and get muddy. Yes. It's great. Oh, shut up, Mrs. Enthusiastic. <laughs> I think the thing we all need to remember here when Beth says that she's not that keen is, um, how old were you when you learned to ride a yes. bike, Beth? Just remind us again. I'm just a little bit older than most, maybe. Yeah. Most being. Yeah, okay. Come on. I was 30. 30, <laughs> that is, not 13. <laughs> That's, uh, I don't know, do you have to be... Um, Alex Brinney is in the other studio now pulling a ridiculous face at me, you know. Um, but do you have to be a real... I don't know, adrenaline junkie to no. really enjoy this kind no. of sport. I think you have to have a certain amount of no fear because obviously you're going to ride some downhill, some technical stuff, but that comes with practice as well. And I've always said to any of the people I've taken out, which includes the men when we do our other rides and what have you, that I will never take anybody anywhere that I wouldn't be able to ride myself. But you can ride really well. Oh, I have my moments. <laughs> I have my offs and they're always photographed as well. But it is, it's about getting the confidence. And the more you ride, the more confident you get and the practice. And one of the theories is, you know, you have a go at something three times. And if you don't succeed that time, forget about it for that moment and come back to it at a later time. Because otherwise you start to look at it and you become fearful of it. So you will not going to do it anyway. So it is, the more you do, practice makes perfect. Do you know the thing that does appeal to me about it, apart from the social side of getting together mm. with lots of people, is tea and cake. There seems to be a lot of tea and cake involved in cycling. Right, so. Yes, that's one of the. What we always say is that you've got to like cake, you've got to like going out and being sociable, you've got to have a sense of humour and a level of fitness. 
Tin World Mills always seems to be mm. um, very full of cyclists mm. having cake down there. The other thing that might put women off there, Caroline, is it's quite an expensive sport. Um, if you think of all the, the gear that you need, you know, having your bike, getting pedals. Well, the thing is, you pay for what you get. If you get a decent bike, it will last you. If you maintain it, look after it, be fine. The gear you can get these days, I mean to say Sports Direct, you know, if you, if you don't want to be spending a lot of money, you can get some of the stuff from Sports Direct, which, it, again, aren't always going to be as comfortable, but at the end of the day, you can get the gear and then it doesn't wear out anyway because it's one of those things you buy, Lycra lasts forever, really. So what are you doing then to try and get more women out on the trails? Well, I've advertised through the power of social media, Facebook, through the Isle of Man Women's Cycling and I've put down for two taster sessions. One was a fortnight ago. We've got another one tonight out at Conrennie. And all we ask is that ladies turn up, come along with their bikes in working order, have a helmet because no ride, no helmet, no ride, because if you fall off, you become everybody's responsibility. And I do this for the love of it, not that I'm, I'm not affiliated with any clubs or, or anything like that. I just do this because I'm enthusiastic and I want to get other women out and be enthusiastic as well and enjoy it and, and be able to do something that the men can do as well. Um, interesting you're talking about having your bike in working order because you also organise some women-only bike maintenance sessions. Mm. We've done that through one of the local shops who's prepared to give up his time and he usually does it of an evening, has about five women and shows them how to change a tyre, do a tube change you know fix the, the chain if it breaks something that's you know the least problematic things that to gets back and also about general maintenance as well and then that way we can actually show the men what we can do because it has happened that we've had to show the men how to change their tires i bet it must be frustrating if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you've you know you kind of do have something wrong with your bike and you kind of don't know what you're doing you have to ask a guy in the team to well, help you but well it's because it's we've well because most of the girls that i've cycled with recently and in past times They've all been on the maintenance. We're all pretty clued up. And in fact, only last week, I was parked outside the Timwald Inn for cake and a guy stopped with a puncture. And basically, he couldn't do it. And I said, I will do it. He said, no, 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 it's two, it took me three days. I said, I will do it. And I got the tyre off. I got it fixed. And it's like, yes. It's such a good moment, isn't it? I yes. love that. Yeah. Um, on the Isle of Man, where would you say your favourite parts are to go mountain biking? I think the open parts really, I mean, say the plantation, I mean, the Archalican plantation, there's a lot of good stuff in there, a lot of trails, about seven to ten miles in there now. Um, South Brule has a good skill mix down there, but also some of the open land that you can go on as well. So all of it. We've had a text in from John who said, uh, why would being expensive put women off mountain biking? I've never known it to put my wife off anything. <laughs> <laughs> hasn't put your husband off either, has no, it? it? certainly has not. Um, <laughs> I know there's something else Joe wanted to ask you. She was a little, maybe a little, got a little shy now, have you, Joe? Just about cycling and perhaps getting a little bit of a sore bottom. Oh, oh yes, good point. Yes. Yeah. Mm, really do suffer with saddle sore. Yeah, you kind of go on after not being on the bike for a long time, perhaps get saddle sore, and then it puts you off going back on on it again so you know for anyone that's listening that suffers this what can we do well having suffered myself sometimes it's to do with the saddle you know because sometimes they're too wide too narrow so again it's making sure the saddle and you can get a saddle fit in in the local shops they've got special little contraption that you sit your on and measure it all up um making sure you don't wear your knickers underneath your lycra is Sorry. another little Sorry, nicholas what? nicholas darling nicholas oh, right. <laughs> and if all else fails you can get what's called chamois cream which is a little cream that you rub in the nether regions and it's antibacterial and keeps it there fresh. Go. There, there you go. Yeah. All Ain't questions answered. <laughs> First, we're talking about uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who says women-only train carriages could be introduced to help guard against sex attacks at night. Now, launching his street harassment policy, the front-runner in the Labour leadership race says he would hold a consultation on the idea. But rival candidate Yvette Cooper has tweeted, why should we have to shut ourselves away to stay safe? And Education Secretary Nikki Morgan, who is also Minister for Women and Equalities, says she is also uncomfortable with the idea. I'm very uncomfortable with the idea. Um, it seems to me not to tackle the issue, which is about women should feel safe and free from, be free from harassment on public transport. It seems to say, let's segregate people rather than tackling the, uh, the issue. So women-only train carriages, women-only public transport, what do we think, Joe? 
I was sitting on the fence when we were kind of having a conversation about it just before, um, thinking that actually, do we need to be doing this? Um, you know, do we have to be having women train only carriages? Because, yeah, I kind of understand what we're saying. Nikki Morgan saying that actually we should be tackling the problem itself head on. However, um, I think, you know, you mentioned to me, Beth, and said, well, what about your daughter? Wouldn't you feel more happy knowing that there was a women only carriage for her? And yeah, I kind of thought, actually, when it comes to her, I probably would do. However, if there was a woman only carriage and she had the option of going to the woman only carriage or where there was maybe a cute guy in another carriage, where's she going to choose? So, I don't know, sitting on the fence slightly. Do you know, I, I mean, I've read a lot of uh, the arguments for and against this. My initial reaction was, this is a really good idea. Um, you don't ever really know what women have been through in their personal life. You don't know what sort of things are going on with them. So if there is an option where they can sit somewhere where they might feel a little bit more comfortable, then surely that's a good thing. You don't have to go and sit in that carriage, but maybe there should be that option there. Um you can't fundamentally change society and I know lots of people say this isn't dealing with the real fundamental cause and actually what we should be trying to get rid of is the harassment in the first place if I can say that word properly mm-hmm. um, but you know that's that's really idealistic so if you can't actually do that then give people an option where they do feel safe and they do feel secure. But I think the problem with that is <clears throat> excuse me is that we're, we're perpetuating this idea that women are victims and need to be shut away, like uh, Yvette Cooper tweeted, that we have to kind of enclose ourselves and separate ourselves to remain safe. And at the same time, we're perpetuating this idea that all men are out there to get us. You know, it, we're not doing men any favours in this either. We're suggesting that we need to be kept away from them because they simply cannot control themselves. And I don't think that's fair on the vast, vast majority of men or women. I don't think it is saying that. I think it's just saying here is an option. And if you feel more comfortable taking that option, then you go for it. You know, when I was at university... Um, in the evenings they had a women's only bus and I think why not why not do that why not provide that service and make people feel more comfortable if that's what they want to do we're not saying that you have to take that option but maybe it should just be there but aren't we again missing the point that we're not getting to the root cause and how do you get to the root cause that's exactly what I was going to say how do we do it education I think we need to be teaching people about other people's rights we need to be teaching people to treat people with respect what harassment or harassment actually is and we need to get to the root rather than just just try and counter the, the side effects of it. Well, and in the meantime, everybody just has to put up with it. But that's going to take time as well. In actual fact, that's going to take a long time for that to happen, for the education to take place. We start now. So I kind of see that if we were to give the option of it, then yes, at least you have got the option if women feel very vulnerable. I think it is a step back into history, if I'm honest. I don't think it's progressive. I think it reminds me actually of um, kind of Jane Austen novels and particularly Emma, the idea that, oh, well, women shouldn't travel alone. It's too dangerous. And women shouldn't get into a, a carriage with a man because it would suggest that she was uh, slightly of a certain type of woman. No, but and I not... think that's, that's not fair on anyone. As I say, I don't think it's, it's fair on men or women. I just, I'd still maintain that there should be that option there. And if people are more comfortable with that, I think that is a good enough reason to do it. Heather, um, you talked about the fact that you grew up in South Africa and then moved over here with your daughter. Um, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this. I mean, what was the sort of situation when you were growing up and going out and, and how transport was arranged? Well, there was a bit different, I think, in South Africa during the apartheid years, obviously, because there were different different transports um, uh, for different race groups, so that was a completely different issue. But I do th- actually think both sides sound a bit correct to me in respect of educating people because, um, to actually know how to treat and respect other people. But I think also today, the world is in such a state today, I think we have to protect people now as well. So I do think maybe it's a bit of really both, um, in my view. So therefore, if we do provide the carriage, we're given the option for the both in yes. a way as well. Um, we've had uh, some really interesting thoughts on this. Pam um, texted in to say, separate railway carriages for women smacks of a thinly veiled attempt to ignore the problem of harassment. What happens if the women-only carriage is full and a woman goes in another carriage, encounters bad behaviour and reports it? I can imagine the reaction being, oh well, you brought it on yourself, you should have gone in the women's carriage. A retrograde step, heavier, heavier penalties for the perpetrators would be more welcome, I believe. It reminds me of um, when I was at university and um, there was a... Sp- a spate of rapes in a, a, a local park that we had to walk through to get home and so the university was providing things like a walking bus and um, you know rape alarms or, or pepper spray and a friend of mine really raised a point that I think is really interesting that she said you know if if you then are walking through that park and you are raped 
creates this place where people can blame you and say you didn't take those necessary precautions just like the the comment we've had in so it blames you the woman who's been attacked and been through something so horrific instead of blaming the person who actually raped you I think we should probably point out at this point that um, men can clearly be harassed as well. So um, I think we were sort of almost jokingly saying before, wouldn't it be good just to put all the harassers in one carriage and all the, the people who wanted to feel safe in another? You know, we, it is, you can't solve the fundamental issue, but I still maintain that there should be that option there. I would feel more comfortable with my daughter knowing that, that there was that option there if she wanted to take it. Yeah, I agree on that. And isn't it funny how we do do that? We don't think about it for ourselves so much, but we would think about it for our daughters more so. Uh, some other comments that we've had on the uh, F- Women Today Facebook page. Um, Laura says, I don't think women should need to be segregated simply to protect themselves. In my opinion, Mr Corbyn should look toward doing more to impose justice on those who harass women or anyone in such a manner. More needs to be changed at a cultural level. We can't put band-aids over every instance or harassment or sexism. We start separating ourselves and we start victimising ourselves unnecessarily. That's 1915 logic, not 2015. Uh, Amy says, surely we should live in a world where a woman feels safe going on any train rather than segregating us. Making single train carriages is not going to solve the serious problem we have where a minority of British men believe they're superior to women. Isn't that the real problem that needs addressing rather than just skirting around the issue? This ludicrous idea would only create a further divide. What planet is he on? Also, if these women-only carriages are implemented, is there not a risk that these will become targets for the women who are getting off the train? They're already highlighting themselves to be uneasy by themselves, so there's a risk they could be drawing more attention to themselves by using that carriage. We've had another comment from Jackie Nee who says, but back to reality, well, this is happening. Recognising this is an issue has to be the first step, surely. She says, at university 20 years ago, there were women-only minibuses which operated late into night from student unions to ensure young women were not stranded. She says, I never used them because I always travelled in a group, but I was grateful they were there in case I got separated. Not everyone is able to travel with people going in the same direction. Not everyone has confidence to travel alone. Segregation, while it may rancor with some, pro- with some provides women with a safe journey and a allows them to travel with confidence. That in itself must be positive in giving those women a better life. In the meantime, society needs to teach its children better manners and value systems in order to change the view that anyone is there to be abused, man or woman or child. Culture cannot change overnight and society can't address the issues. So for me, whilst it doesn't treat the symptoms, it manages the side effects. And uh, just a few more texts before we go to the competition and um, we'll carry on with this afterwards. But uh, totally with Kate here, Beth, what happens in the other carriages, says Sarah, do the men then feel that if you choose not to sit in the women-only carriage, you are therefore up for it. How about having security guards in the carriages? Um, a gang of women are every bit as bad as men, says Bill. And uh, if you have women-only carriages, can we also have men-only ones to separate us from screaming women and kids? Also for us mature people who don't want to be surrounded by music playing Egypt's third set from MC. That certainly uh, got people talking this one, Kate. It has indeed. We've had a comment from Jared Brown on Facebook. He says, the facts are that there is a rise in reporting of assaults, not assaults themselves. Segregation should only be considered as the last resort for a failed system. Women also face harassment in the workplace that is arguably more damaging. Should we segregate offices? I generally think, he says, the world on average gets better with more reporting and use of camera phones to identify perpetrators. I think we can tackle this without resorting to such drastic measures. Yeah, I was a good point. And I was on the um, train last week going from London to Liverpool and I was in a carriage where there was a huge amount of football supporters and they were all drinking. And, you know, I was getting the usual kind of, as any woman does, kind of the look, the banter, what the other. But the point I want to make is I, in three hours, I think it was, of a train journey, didn't get to see one guard on that train, not one guard in that carriage. And there was quite a few young girls that did get up and move carriages because of them. But so my point is, I think we need to see more guards walking up and down the trains. Um, and we've had a text in from John saying, in 1981, my wife was raped. She never recovered from the experience effectively. It was a life sentence. Maybe the answer is to impose a mandatory life sentence for rape. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. And our guest this afternoon is a style coach. Heather Rothwell has recently started her own business and it really aims to give women confidence when it comes to their image using what she describes as a holistic approach. Now she does things like analyse your body shape, identifies the best colours for your skin tone and she'll also come along with you on a shopping trip to make sure you don't end up with expensive regrets in your wardrobe. Uh, so just before we talk to Heather now, uh, let's just hear how Kate and I got on when we went for some style coaching of our own with Heather. Okay, Kate. Um, well, we're just going to start the session with Heather now. How are you feeling? 
I am really weirdly nervous. I am second guessing everything I put on this morning. Um, I feel like I probably should have made an effort with my hair. Yeah, I'm, I am quite nervous about it. It's weird. Would you like me to point out some things that I think maybe you could improve on? I will certainly return the favour, Beth. I've got a long list I've been working on for you. Is that right? Okay, we won't. Let's leave it to Heather. Okay, Heather. Well, we've arrived. We're both a little bit nervous. I mean, what do you do? Do you have an overall impression that you make initially of your clients? Not all the time, no. But I will know straight away what sort of a dresser they are in respect of whether they're a dramatic dresser, creative or classic. That's usually quite obvious. So I might make that that sort of um, judgment. But other than that, no, I need to actually sit down with them. What kind of dresses are we then? I'd say Kate's probably a little bit creative and dramatic, um, definitely. And I think you're a little bit more of the classic style and also a little bit natural, perhaps. Ooh, natural, natural's good. Is that good? It's a good thing. Both are good. They're all good. Everybody's individual. <laughs> so no, both you, you probably straddle both, I'd say. And most people generally straddle two different types of dress senses. So you look, you look lovely, the two of you. Okay, so we've started off all right. It's feeling a little less nervous now? Oh, yeah, I'm feeling a little less nervous. I quite like dramatic. I quite like creative. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. And then the other part of your consultation sort of focuses on body shape analysis and I guess lots of people might worry about this because we all seem to be quite conscious of what our what we perceive our flaws to be how do you handle that well it is you have to be careful with with ladies obviously because they are quite sensitive but the overall thing you're trying to get with body shape is to get to the silhouette the actual silhouette of a um, hourglass figure that is your perfect feminine figure well I think both of you seem to have a, an actual waist because a lot of ladies are straight up and down but you both got waists and the way to identify a, 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 the silhouette is if your shoulders and your hips are similar measurements now you two look like you actually do have similar measurements and you do actually have waists so you would be already the hourglass figures if our focus then should be on enhancing that hourglass figure I mean how do you do that without just always wearing really tight clothes well, you can enhance it by using belts, and depending on the style where your trousers actually end, you don't want trousers to be too high, perhaps, because then you're not going to see your waist. But the best thing to do is just to make sure you don't lose your waist if you want to look your best, because curvaceous with your waist is actually the way to go. I'm looking at my baggy black jumper now and thinking, perhaps I haven't got it quite right today. It's not quite nipped in at the waist. It's um, You could probably fit in it as well, to be honest. I was just going to say that. I thought it might sound weird. <laughs> It did sound weird, but I said it. So I'm quite relieved that we haven't walked in here and you've just looked us up and down and gone, what are you wearing? Yeah, well, not at all. You both look lovely in the way you are. Plus, you've got to, you've got to dress according to your, your, your actual work, what you're doing. You can't go to work in a big fancy evening gown and high heels. You've got to be comfortable in what you're wearing. So there's different outfits for different occasions as well. We better pass that tip on to Jo. Oh, she keeps getting overdressed for work. It's, it's either boring gowns or yoga kit. The tiara's too much. <laughs> Ballroom <laughs> gowns? Hardly. Well, yeah, I hate it that. when I miss out on something because I get such stick at the other end. <laughs> you should hear what we edited out, Joe. <laughs> yeah, we were quite nice there, actually. Um, Heather, I just want to ask you about what you were saying there regarding the, the hourglass figure and that being the sort of shape that women should really be striving for. I just wonder, whose idea of beauty then are we striving to achieve, do you think? Well, I think the hourglass thing is more to do with the most feminine, or is known to be the most feminine body shape, and that's why that's what we're all striving. The silhouette is to be, is actually to be a, um, an hourglass. Um, so it's no particular thing. It's just that that's the most feminine look. Um, and I, I know that one of the things, as I mentioned in the introduction, that you really want to do is help women accept the way they look, even learn to to like the way they look. How do you do that against a backdrop of impossibly beautiful images that we see in the media all the time? I think it's about teaching somebody to, to um, do more positive self-talk and accept themselves as they are and the fact that we're all unique and everybody's beautiful in their own way and it's basically concentrating and focusing on the positives of the body and that way the other images you see shouldn't really matter because you are actually unique in yourself and you should dress according to that. There was a, a real trend a little while ago for these style makeover programmes on television. Mm -hmm. We still see some of them. Um, you know, the, the Gok Wan type show where somebody goes in looking maybe a little bit frumpy, uh, come out looking a million dollars. Now, you are very, very keen to point out that you are not doing that. Why? Yes, it's not an actual image makeover. What it is is teaching you um, to actually be confident and accept your body as it is and to use certain techniques and styles that actually you can use throughout your life. So it's not about doing a makeover for that particular stage. It's for actually getting you to understand your body, accepting your body as it is, being more confident about it and moving forward with that. How good are you at kind of accepting your body and, and not getting hung up on those bits you dislike? 
Um, I've actually learned just to almost, and I know how to camouflage them, let's say. <laughs> um, so I do have the bits I don't like as well, like everybody else, but I've, I know what to do to hide them and try and look my best. So, yeah. Um, we hear very often, particularly with women, um, about what you should and shouldn't wear as you get older. I mean, do you think there are fashion guidelines that we really do need to be following? I think there are guidelines for people, but it comes down to the individual person at the end of the day. If somebody wants to be dressing like a 20-year-old when they're 50, then that's absolutely fine. But you're not going to look your best, and you're not going to be the most stylish by doing that. I just wonder, though, how you define best, because everybody's got a different idea of what you know what looking good actually means absolutely and that's why it's so individual but it's not about changing anybody's way of dressing everybody's individual and style coaching is about keeping the person as they are um and in the way that they want to dress some people get really self-conscious about things like clothes sizes and we were talking uh, before the start of the program about the fact that sizes in different shops are just completely different what might be you know you might be a size 10 in one shop it might be a size 14 in another I wonder how you tackle that because that's inherently something that women can be really self-conscious about. It is unfortunately that way. Um, we all think about we want to be a size 8 or a size 10, but realistically the shops are all geared to focus on certain age groups. So a 10 in one shop um, might be aimed at the, the 20-year-olds and a 10 in another shop might be aimed at the 50-year-olds. So the, the actual sizes are going to be inches apart. So the key really is to try the actual item on and ignore the size on the label. Um, trends change all the time. They don't necessarily always suit everyone. How do you keep up to date with your style and your fashion if it's not particularly something that suits you? Well, if it doesn't suit you, obviously you don't have to, you, you shouldn't really wear it if it doesn't suit or do anything for you. Nothing's stopping you wearing it. Um, but we want you to look your best every day. So um, it's a case of teaching somebody how to pick out the right the right items for their body shape, the right colour of that item, so that they will look their best. But it's not about taking the latest fashions and wearing them because, no, we can't all suit them. What about spending money on clothing? Because, obviously, if we were to budget, what would you say are the, the kind of key items that we should be really spending money on? Well, your items mainly would be like your, your coats and your jackets, a good pair of boots, a good handbag, like a statement handbag. The items, those are all like your main basic items. Um, a good Mac is another a nice Especially item. in the Isle of Man, you need a good <laughs> Mac. Yes, a good Mac. Um, and also um, a nice pair of proper fitting jeans as well. Things like that are your main items that you should always rather spend a bit more money on. But it's not about having a big expensive wardrobe at all. You can actually do it quite cheaply as well. Do you have a go-to outfit that you know, if I put this on this morning... I will look good no matter what. I have quite a few of those actually. Now, oh, since you I've would, been doing Heather, this, wouldn't you? Well, <laughs> since I've been doing the studies, I do have a few outfits that I know I'm actually okay in. Um, and, but there is different ones I wear for different occasions, obviously as well. And it's about being dressed for for the right occasion. But yes, I, I do have a few outfits I'm comfortable with. Um, you're very um, key on the idea of things fitting properly. So I wonder then how you feel about online shopping, which is massive nowadays. But you can't always, obviously try it on before you buy it well actually no you can't ever really it unless you're very very clever yes absolutely and i think the key to that is rather um is when you get something is if you're not happy with it obviously you've got to send it back but you get to know what shops you can shop at online and a lot of the, the actual high streets you can actually shop online so you'll know that their clothes are smaller sizes or certain fits anyway really can you be that stylish in the isle of man when there's a high chance that you're going to see somebody else wearing the same thing um, no, I think the key here is also to try and shop where maybe um, there isn't items on the island. So you've got to shop in, in different places, maybe the odd boutique um, things, or buy things at the early when the season comes out, when people aren't buying, get your goods then. Because I find if I buy at the beginning of the season, people haven't bought yet for like winter, so get those items in. No one's seen them before when you I, wear them. I can't buy winter clothes in summer. It just doesn't feel right. Like if you're in summer and you're having to buy mm. key pieces for autumn, you, you're saying go out and get them now. Mm. Oh. I bought a lovely skirt um, last winter and I bought it in the beginning of the season and everybody said what a brilliant skirt that is where did I get it and I actually bought it early and they were all out the shops by the time other people wanted to buy point, them good point. so should we be scouring through these fashion magazines to see actually what is on trend at the moment because to be honest I look at some of those clothes and think nice but would you wear it in Wigan <laughs> no it's not for everybody obviously to be constantly um, wearing the highest uh, fashion and, and always buying clothing but I think as long as you're wearing what you, what you need for the occasion and you're comfortable and you've got your own particular style I think it's absolutely fine or even Douglas yeah. <laughs> or even Douglas <laughs> what, what, what's, what's wrong with Wigan <laughs> I couldn't think of a place in the other man that started with W I was trying to alliterate trying to be clever never mind now we're talking about whether the media is right to publish footage of the Virginia gunman well many broadcasters and newspapers have decided to show 
elements of the shooting in the US that saw a TV reporter and her cameraman shot dead during a live broadcast. And uh, just before we go any further, let's remind ourselves of just what happened yesterday. The last thing that she said to me was, good night, sweet boy. Chris Hurst, the boyfriend of reporter Alison Parker. Nobody, I think, goes into her workplace thinking that's where they're going to find their true love, but that just so happened to be where I found it. Miss Parker died along with her cameraman in Virginia yesterday. The gunman later killed himself. We wanted to get married to each other and we moved in together to save up for those things, to save up for a house and save up for a ring. Barack Obama says the incident's part of a nationwide problem with gun violence. The number of people who die from gun-related incidents around this country uh, dwarfs any deaths that happen through terrorism. He's described the shooting as heartbreaking. Paul Smith reporting there. Now, this morning, the haunting image of TV reporter Alison Parker during her last moments was on the front pages of many of the newspapers. So we were just wondering what you think. Is the media right to publish footage of the Virginia gunman? It's a really, really difficult, tricky question that I don't think there is a correct answer to. Um, I think it's a moral question whether you feel comfortable publishing that image. And then I also think it's a question of whether journalists should report, use it to illustrate their report. Is it necessary to show someone moments before their death? I, I don't really know. I just always think of their friends and family and um, as far as I'm concerned I think it's because it sells the newspapers that they do it and it's a good story as far as the media is concerned. Um, I know that we shouldn't be wrapping up everyone in cotton wool and maybe we do need to be exposed to real life situations but actually I think there's a limit. I don't think we need to be showing the footage over and over again. We live in a really different world, though, don't we? Because if it wasn't the established media broadcasting these pictures, then it would be people with their phones publishing things on on Facebook, on Twitter, photographs like that. And I think we are in real danger, and I suppose I am speaking as somebody who has a journalistic background, of just (laughs) casting journalists into this role of whether they are just looking for a really bad story, they're just looking to make people unhappy with the images that they're selling, and that's not necessarily always true. I think there is... a a responsibility of journalists to to report truthfully and report the actuality and the fact is this woman was killed, both these people were killed and there were images and there's a responsibility of journalists to show the truth and surely they are doing that by publishing the images. Uh, I do think, you know, again, if I sort of speaking from personal experience, I know when I've covered inquests in the past, particularly ones that are really, really tragic, when you're writing the story afterwards, you know, I am always mindful of people who are going to be listening, their families, their friends, and, and the impact on them. And, you know, that it is really, really difficult. And not just that, not just family and friends, but people who have been in situations that may have lost ones before in this. It brings back, obviously, feelings of that when they may be at the most vulnerable, they are obviously fragile. I think there is a fine line here. I think that we can write about things, but we may not need to actually publish photos about it or graphic videos about it. I think if you write it in a very clever way, you can actually describe a situation and be very honest about it without actually publishing the video that goes with it. I, I think you're right. I think there is a, for me personally, morally, I think there is a big difference between a photograph and a video, rightly or wrongly. I think there is a difference. But I also think that you need to tell the story, and it goes back to the old thing, you know, a a picture pays a thousand words. And I think by showing an image, you do capture people in in a way that you sometimes you can't with words. You can get closer to the story by showing the image. And it is a story, I think, that needs to be told. It's an important story. Isn't there problem that really as a society that we are kind of almost detached from reality and when we see these images we see them all the time there are tragic stories literally every day on the front of newspapers on websites on news websites and we are almost desensitized to it and I wonder whether you know this is why the gunman did this he knew the coverage that it was going to get Mm, yeah and also Is it a story that, you know, we don't often hear of this type of situation happening? What worries me is the kind of strange people in the world see this and the fuss that it's been given and the excitement that's been given maybe and thinks, oh, maybe that's something that I could do. That's what worries me the most about this because it is very unusual. I was trying to think about what I would want if I I, to try and put myself in that situation, which obviously you, you can't. And I was thinking for myself, I, I would want that image of me shown. 
I, I would because I would want to start a conversation about gun control in America and for people to know what happened to just see the the true brutality of it but I think again like you were saying Joe, when I think about my friends my family my mum and dad having to see that photograph spread everywhere that's that's different that which is really there forever is isn't it it's but, there forever but then journalists do have a job to do to get that story out there is a job not the person behind the role there is a demand for news that is the reality of this situation there is a demand for news and how do you cover it in a inverted commas responsible way where is the line as far as taste comes so okay let's look at the different censorships that we have within the uk that compared to in other countries where in other countries they show everything you know like i think france is one of them where literally you can show anything in any of the newspapers whereas in are we in the uk do you think we're to um wrap people up in cotton wool that we don't expose everything so much I wouldn't have said so. I don't, we've got some uh, texts in on this. Um, absolutely not. Why would we want to see those images over and over again? The poor families who may have been watching at the time. Uh, media has no moral compass. Uh, compass, Phone hacking, stalking, printing nonsense. They just don't care. That's uh, from Gary. We've had another one on Facebook from Amy who says, I know it happened on live television, but surely it would be more considerate to the victims' families to have pictures of them alive. I'd be devastated if that was my family member's body all over the press. Um, Carly and Miles, I mean, obviously this is... Uh, very much in the spotlight at the moment. Did you have any thoughts about the way that this story has been covered? I think it's a matter of striking the, the right balance because I, I agree with all the arguments because there's arguments for and against what's happened. But you've got the person who's going to murder somebody with the deliberate intention that that murder is going to be publicly broadcast because he filmed it. So he wants the publicity for whatever weird reason. That, that's what he wants. So in a way, he's, he's achieved that aim. So I think the, there is an onus on the journalist to try and say, well, if that's his aim and objective, do we need to be assisting this? Do we need to be hel helping him do that in case somebody else has that weird aim as well? Or do we need to step back and say, no, in this case, we're not going to give you the publicity you're trying to obtain and maybe we'll, we'll take a, a more restrained approach but that, mm. that, that's for it's the different newspapers. if he was still alive wouldn't it it would be yeah. you know it's different the fact that he's not obviously alive anymore so was he wanting the publicity from it um, I suppose a sort of similar situation. Um, my friend was one of the female police officers who was killed in Manchester nearly three years ago now and you know speaking from experience of what it's like seeing somebody you know you know really well whose picture then is on the front of the newspapers who's on the on the websites after something like that has happened it really does sort of bring it home to you how people who are directly affected feel when you know when it's somebody they know i think there is a very fine line between reporting and sensationalizing and that's that's something that journalists do definitely have to take into consideration not to overdo it. But also journalists have to have a certain amount of emotional detachment. You can't be emotionally involved in every single story because unfortunately the vast majority of stories that you cover aren't necessarily good ones. But yet at the same time you also want to put out a story surely that, that is going to get the reaction of empathy from someone. You want to create that illusion of, of understanding it fully and, and telling the story as, as close to the bone as you can. So it's, oh, it's such a fine line and I don't think there, there is a right or wrong. Our guests this afternoon are from the Isle of Man Film Festival and we'll also be hearing today from a rock star wife. As ever, if you would like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can email womentoday at manxradio.com. You can text 166177 or go to the Women Today Facebook page or follow us at MRWomenToday on Twitter. Now, as I say, our guests this afternoon are two of the leading ladies, if I can use that phrase, from the Isle of Man Film Festival. Uh, that festival founded back in 2012, starting out as a platform Form for local filmmakers. It has now gone international. Zoe Guildford and Chrissy Dehaven, thank you very much for being here. Good job. <laughs> I, I needed a script. Do you know really? what? I think she's starstruck, yeah, Zoe. I think that's what it is. <laughs> that is absolutely what it is. Would you like to cast me in one of your films now? No? Okay. Is, that's why we're here, isn't well, it, Beth, essentially? Well, yeah, it's all about me. I'm going to do a little bit of singing later as well. Yes. Um, I'm going to ask you first, though, Christy, what is your favourite film? <gasps> oh, my goodness, that's such a hard question. Jaws. But I can tell me mine. Thank in you. A moment. <laughs> Rescued. <laughs> wow. This is that what I have is to put up brilliant, with. Zoe. And we'll tell you why. You're going to know later. why that's yeah, why that's so appropriate a little bit later. Um, no, so you can't can't it, think. Of I, I could list maybe five. 
I really, really love Wings of Desire, um, uh, love Moulin Rouge. Oh, there's loads. It's too hard. It's too hard. So did you grow up sort of watching film? Was it something that you were really into? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. But I absolutely love watching films, the escapism of it. I think that's why I, I tend to enjoy films that are, that are sort of fantasy and sci-fi quite a lot as well. I love things like Fifth Element and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, all about getting away from reality. Love it. Well, let's just talk a bit about your background. Um, people may recognise your voice from another radio station. Um, you <laughs> did a degree in broadcast journalism at Sheffield what was your ambition at that point Christy? Well I think because I I actually really enjoyed writing to start with and so I wanted to sort of combine the idea of of continuing to write but also make it something a little bit more sort of into the sort of dramatic areas. Uh, It was actually the first year that Sheffield Uni had ever done broadcast journalism so when I got there I realised they hadn't really worked out what they were going to do with us so it essentially ended up being mostly a print journalism degree so I managed to make a documentary in the final year um, as a dissertation and then I actually went off to the States and did more broadcast journalism when I was in the States. Yeah well you were awarded the Ella Ollison Scholarship and so spent a year in America doing amazing things. What was that like? It's brilliant because it doesn't sort of count for anything because you've already got your degree. It's a fabulous opportunity. You get to mix with people from all over the world and you're living in America, which is, you know, Eddie Murphy knows all of that. But yeah, it's it's just really good fun. But also you can pick and choose whatever subjects you want to do without any pressure. So I, as I said, I sort of tailored it towards broadcast journalism, but then I also did things like jazz singing (laughs) just because it was there and a bit of acting and uh, went to quite a lot of frat parties and uh, presented a late night campus radio show I did yes I'm sure there may be many funny stories from that oh yeah everyone falling out of the pubs at goodness knows what hour of the morning and I was their entertainment so yeah it was (laughs) yeah some shocking stories which I couldn't possibly reveal at this time of day Um, you mentioned jazz singing Um, you are obviously very well known on the music scene over here so were you that little girl singing to the hairbrush in front of the mirror Actually, I used to just sing backing vocals all the time to everything when I was a kid. So I would never sing a main line. I always just used to sing the harmonies. Um, my family are all quite musical, though they don't actually perform. Mum and dad are, are very, very musical. And so I, we'd sort of, you know, sort of sing along together. <laughs> oh, my goodness, I make a sound like the Partridge family. Uh, <laughs> we didn't are. like to say anything. No, um, But you've done a lot of backing, um, backing, backing singing. Yeah. Um, I started Falls, out, David yeah. Knowles. Um, yeah. You have also completed your debut album, um, Girl Undone, that was a yes. couple of years ago. I love the way you say you haven't quite got round to formally releasing <laughs> no, it yet. I, haven't. I basically put out, um, I recorded it with Dave Armstrong, so he arranged a lot of the songs for me. And I did a sort of, almost like a, an early release of it because I got to support one of my favourite artists, Scott Matthews, a few years ago, thanks to mutual friend Bruno Kavlek. And uh, so I put out a sort of s- small release of it for that um, with the intention then of doing some sort of big whistles and bells thing eventually and doing sort of a vinyl and everything. And I'm kind of still getting round to it <laughs> several years later. So that's a problem when you are into so many different things. Yeah. It's just finding the time, isn't it? It is. Um, and with your uh, radio programme, um, and going back to sort of your early uh, radio show, which was mm-hmm. on Energy, you interviewed a number of UK artists. Do you have a particular yeah. favourite? Yeah, there was a few actually that were really good fun. There was a, a guy called Just Jack who was, uh, I really enjoyed interviewing him. Um, Gary Jules, he was interesting to interview. But one of my favourite moments was uh, I was interviewing uh, Electric Six after they'd just come off stage at Glastonbury. And I'd heard somehow on the grapevine that one of the guys was leaving. <clears throat> and I thought it was common knowledge. So I was interviewing the lead singer and I said, oh, and da da da, so and so is leaving. And he said, sorry. <laughs> oh. And it was live on air. And I said, oh, um, isn't 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 he leaving? And he said, "How do you know that?" <laughs> this was sort of live, so I had to sort of change the tag of the interview very quickly. So I almost had a scoop. I should have run with it, really, but I clearly don't have the hard-nosed journalist head on my shoulders. <laughs> uh, Zoe Guilford, you were born and brought up over here. Did you know at quite a young age what you wanted to do? Absolutely not. No, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do when I moved back to the island when I was about thirty-three. Because <laughs> you spent your twenties in London. What were you doing there? Um, I was mainly a management consultant don't ask me what that is I didn't even know but I did that for many years and really enjoyed the you know London scene and loved living in London and moved around quite a bit but um really fancied moving back to the island and getting stuck into something that I really enjoyed and I'd heard I'd heard that there was quite a bit going on in the film industry and had absolutely no background but I'd heard the same names being mentioned over and over again Chrissy Dehave and Dave Armstrong so found an email address, contacted them, and then within a week of me getting back, they were running a um, an acting workshop 
and they said you should come down and I was like no 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 I can't do acting and they were like no no come down it's a great way to meet people and I went down and they have been and the people who are on the course have been my friends ever since so yeah so you obviously work quite closely together mm-hmm. I wonder how that impacts sometimes on your friendship oh god I can't stand her <laughs> but how do you handle disagreements you know if you, you can't always agree on everything but well no it's I think we've just got a really good dynamic haven't we really because we've got sort of a similar outlook anyway uh, we're the same age so that helps too you know we're sort of from similar backgrounds and um yeah we're both just very passionate about what we do so um yeah it just sort of works doesn't it it really does we've done we've worked together now for a couple of years yeah and we just get on great yeah, we do yeah. it's, it's nice that you can hang out with your friend and work yeah, so it doesn't feel I like I feel work. the same. <laughs> oh, you liar! <laughs> I just thought I'd say that on air, but off air, you're so different. Oh, that would be quite <laughs> What did she mean by as that? In, as in friends, you know? <laughs> you're a bit too close to the bone. Isn't <laughs> it? Won't be quiet, though, Beth. <laughs> um, so just tell me about uh, being part of Keith Lemon's comedy crew. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, it's nothing to make my parents proud, but uh, that's why I have to do reputable stuff like the Alaman Film Festival in my other life. But I do enjoy it. Again, exactly what I'm saying. It's working with friends and just having the best laugh ever. So how can I say no to that? So yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't tell anybody it's on, and <laughs> uh, no one knows when it's actually. You can aired. search for it on YouTube. It Please is don't. funny when it is on though, because your Facebook profile suddenly gets bombarded with people that have seen it yeah. <laughs> and are really shocked. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. Actually, it's great being involved in stuff like that because things do go on Facebook. Like I did my first film that I did with uh, the guys when I moved to the island was something called I Do, and it was me getting married. And my cousin had seen a photo on Facebook and went, when did you get married? <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 it's the film industry. I'm an actress now. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's fun. It's all fun. Oh, well, we'll be talking much more about the, the film festival a little bit later. But uh, Christy and Zoe, thank you so much for being our guests this afternoon. You are listening to Women Today on Manx Radio. It is 14 minutes past two. And this weekend, the John Coglands Quo Band are playing at the Villa Marina. And John, who is the original drummer from Status Quo and his wife, Jilly, are back over here for it. Now, they lived here for a decade during the 70s and 80s, first in Jerby and later moving to Balasala. And Kate has been speaking to Jilly about life with a Quo drummer, but first went back to the beginning and asked where they first met. I think I met him the very first time was backstage at Hammersmith Odeon when Stasis Quo were playing there in about 1974 I would say and uh, I was working for bands like Hot Chocolate and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple for their agents Um, and my dad also was the stage director for Hammersmith Odeon prior to that before he died so it was like my second home So were you a Quo fan? I did like the band, yes I did they were great live and I loved drummers and I loved their long hair and John especially had hair down beyond his waist and it was just spectacular So did you know when you met him that he was the, the drummer for you? I I knew he was the drummer for me, but if anyone had said you'll still be here 40 years later, I'd have said, don't be so ridiculous. (laughs) I thought it was fun for the time. I would absolutely never have believed it would have, and nor did anybody else. Talk me through how you ended up on the Isle of Man then in 1976. Oh, unfortunately, that was all down to the Labour government, <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, politics, um, it gets in the way. We, uh, we didn't get together till 76. Um, he'd been married when I first met him and um, I wasn't really interested and blah, blah, blah. And then we ran into each other at the Kinks party. So when we really got together was a party for the Kinks in, at Conk, their recording studio. And he said to me, oh, I'm just off to the Isle of Man to sort out buying my house. Will you have dinner with me when I get back? And it all began from there. And once I had dinner with him, I actually never went back to my flat, really, except to get my stuff, and ended up very shortly afterwards in the Isle of Man. So it was a fait accompli on his part. The band had all been told they had to get out of the country for a year. We ended up staying here 10 years, and the others went to Jersey, Ireland, and Australia. Uh, but John had already decided on this because he was a great mate of Trevor Baines's. Um, and Trevor had said, oh, come and live over here. So he did. <laughs> And what was that like for you to leave behind what sounds quite a rock and roll lifestyle to suddenly find yourself in uh, Balasala? Well, I think it was an adventure. And of course, I, John was with Quo at the time, so we were travelling a lot with the band anyway. It was just something completely different. And there were a lot of party people on the island at that time. We had the Sangsters, all the racehorse people. We had Nazareth, the Bee Gees, Smokey. We had loads of bands here. 
And I think it was just one long party. That first five years, we never, you know, we slept all day and we partied all night. So we didn't see much of the island to start with. Did you find yourself during those years in a position of support for John? Yes, I think so. I think what really brought it home to me was that the band had been looked after in such a tight circle for so many years. They were so young when they started. He was 16 when he met Francis and Alan. And the minute he left Quo, which was 81, we'd already lived together five, six years by then. Literally six, eight weeks later, he asked me to marry him, which I thought was very telling because he'd been in that marriage of Quo all those years. And I wasn't bothered about getting married. I was far too young and I didn't think it would last anyway, to be honest. And um, he asked me to marry him and I sort of thought, hmm, shall I? And that was sort of six years in, but not till after he left the band. So yes, I think I've, I became his I became his rock, I think he'd probably say. Did that allow you time to do your own thing? I've always had time to do my own thing. Yeah. Good. I absolutely believe that you shouldn't see too much of each other in a marriage. plenty of space and separate holidays holidays together but lots of girly ones and other trips as well (laughs) well you are back on the island now and this is only your i think your second trip back in third trip back since we left in 86 i think the third yes and i don't know why we've left it so long and we we love it we came back for the big millennium party which was amazing and then we came back last year to talk about this gig that we're doing on Saturday at the Villa Marina. And um, we had four or five days last November and the sun shone continually. And we hired a car and we went to see all the places that we missed when we lived here for 10 years <laughs> because we were so young and mad then. And it was just glorious. And there's so many old friends that we didn't think anyone would remember us. And people just, even last night when we arrived, people coming up to us in the pub saying, oh, John, Jilly, how wonderful to see you. And it's like, oh, my God, it's, it's just lovely. So tell me about the gig on Saturday night. What can uh, what can the audience expect? We're very excited to be back and for John to be playing here here for the first time in, gosh, 35 years probably. It's his own band, John Coughlin's Quo, which, as the name implies, it's him playing the Quo stuff from his years, which was 62 to 81. So actually all the really big hits, but plus lots of album tracks, lots of obscure things that the Quo fans love. So we're playing at the Villa Marina after 9 o'clock on Saturday night so that the racing will be finished and the roads will be open so people can all get there and time and we're really excited about it the band are great guys they look great um baz the lead singer's got hair down to his waist and all the girls adore baz (laughs) and a very dry sense of humor and it's a really good a really good loud rocking set and we're much looking forward to it so when do you hope to be back on the island I just said to John, driving down today from Ramsey this morning, um, we must come back for a proper holiday trip again soon to, to again hire a car and just potter around and go to all the new restaurants and bistros and eat all the seafood. And this trip's more of a working trip. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely not going to leave it another 10 years. <laughs> Thanks, as always, to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at MR Women Today on Twitter and you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.